Hello and welcome. Thanks everyone for joining this week. I'm David Widmar, co-founder of Agricultural Economic Insights, joining you for the AEI Premium Podcast, where we break down some of the latest ideas that we've written about and share some things to keep you up to date while maybe you're away from your computer or away from the office. So this week, uh, first of all, I want to kick this off with a little bit of a housekeeping. First of all, thank you for all your support and all your questions and your input over the time, especially through the subscriptions, but also wanted to share that we've been able to get a new website look and feel over the finish line. So this is a fresh look at the AEI premium site, still the same great content, same tool, uh, uncertainty tool, but just a fresher look, better way for you to maybe find some of that content. And so we're really excited about that. It's been really exciting to finally get pushed out, put up, and we'll be able to make a lot of improvements from this new site. It's a little bit of the details, but there's a lot of back-end activity that sort of had to go into this. And so we'll kick this off and let us know your feedback and your thoughts and your comments. A couple articles I wanted to share this week. The first one is around the drought situation. I kick this article off by saying it's kind of like the lightning bugs in the summer. You never know when, but they're going to light up the sky every summer and the drought maps. It seemed like actually today, July 22nd, those drought maps really lit up social media. And those have two fatal flaws, or most conversations around those drought maps have two fatal flaws. The first one is it never shares the base rate. How many acres are typically in drought? And the second piece is it never connects the data between what's happening with the share of the national corn crop in drought versus the historic yield implication. So we broke that down in this article. But before I highlight a couple of results from that, I just want to pause and say one of the most deceptive pieces of data that you could produce is a map. Now, I'm not saying every map is intentionally deceptive, but if you wanted to intentionally deceive somebody, a map would be a really good starting point. And the reason why that happens is a lot of things that are going on there. But the first one is there's a lot of data there. There's a lot of information to process. And it can be very subjective as to how you color those or how you present that data. And so it's a bit of an art and less of a science, or if you think about the spectrum, it's more of an art than a science. And so there's a lot that goes into creating those. And so there's a lot of opportunities for you to even adjust the color shading that can really, or the buckets, how many of these counties or states are going to be in this type of a bucket versus the other bucket. So there's a lot that goes into how those get perceived. The second thing that happens, probably the more powerful piece is that the map itself either conveys a lot of information or doesn't convey a lot of information. So if we look at the map of the United States, if you were to see that Iowa was in a drought, you would automatically convey some information there. Like, oh, I know Iowa is really important to the U.S. corn crop, and it is all in a drought, or it's half in a drought. So it impacts that narrative bias that we have internally. And so just sort of keep that in the back of your mind. Another one that you see from time to time is, you know, there's a two-thirds of North Dakota is in a drought. Well, is corn and soybeans raised in those parts of North Dakota that have that drought? If you really want to know how difficult this can be for you, you can take a look at a drought map in maybe South America 
or in Africa or in Europe or in just a part of the world where you don't know the growing region. And so when you look at that, you're going to start to sort of realize, I don't really know what the implications of this are. So that's always going on in the background of your mind. Those maps, the geography of it is something that we all know, and it's kind of encoded. And so it automatically sort of starts to impact the implications of that. So what's going on here in 2022? Well, the first thing I want to share is that there is always some portion of the U.S. corn crop that's in drought and or dry conditions. Even in 2004, when we have this huge monster 18 bushel above the trend line crop, we still had, you know, five to six percent of the corn crop in dry and a similar share in drought conditions. On average, it's about 14 percent of the corn crop is in dry conditions, and about 16 percent on average are in drought conditions. So collectively. A third or 30%, almost a third of the crop is in some shading of the drought map, that drought monitor map. So keep that in mind. Thinking specifically about 2022 this year, it's a bigger number. It's about 53% of the crop, 52, 53% based on rounding is in some shade of coloring from the drought map. 31% in drought, which is roughly double the average, but below the 2021 levels of 38%. This year, it's more of a dry. So there's less drought than last year, but more dry conditions than the year before. 22% of the crop this year is in drought conditions compared to 11% last year and 14% for the average. Of course, I encourage you to go look at these articles. We did the same thing for soybeans, similar, but you know, different. Keep that in mind. The last thing I want to point out here is the relationship between the national, the share of estimated acres and drought conditions and final yield is not very clear. We know intuitively from our backyard that a drought in our backyard is not going to be good for the crop, but it's not as clear cut at the national level. So while we have 31% of the estimated acres drought conditions in 2022, that's one of the, the bigger numbers in history. Uh, you can see that first off, 2012 heavily distorts these data. And so we had some observations, similar thresholds in the past that did not have a huge departure from trend. Last year, we had more of the crop than we have now in drought conditions, and we were only a few bushels below the trend line. In 2005 and 2006, we were at a similar level, around 28 29% in drought, and we had above-trend yields. And if you really look at this data, I encourage you to look at the chart in the article, you can see there's a lot more going on in these data than just the share of the corn crop in drought conditions. So keep that in the back of your mind as you're thinking about these drought maps. You know, we try to put out a whole host of content to help you think about this. There's the drought maps, um, this article, there's Jeff's weekly crop conditions ratings. Jeff's also following along with the Westcott and Jewison model the USDA produced and follows to help us think about What's the scorecard look like for this corn crop as we move through the growing season? So again, another observation, another data point, use caution. These narratives oftentimes, again, overlook the base rate, and they oftentimes overlook that sketchy or that weak relationship between how much red and how much yellow is on the map versus what that final yield is. And just for context, about 75% of the crop was in route conditions in 2012 compared to 31% this year. So we're nowhere near 2012 like drought. And then there's another big share. I believe it was 23% or 22% were in dry conditions that year. So almost the entire corn crop was in dry or drought conditions, but not the entire corn crop. And so always keep that in mind is the last 22 years, we've had always had some acres in 
some shading of color from the drought map, and we've never had all the acres in there. So always keep that in mind. Lastly, today, I want to talk a little bit about ROI, return on investments. And Brent and I have thought about this a lot. We've done some webinars, we've done some presentations, and now we're writing this, what we're thinking about memo. As always, what we're thinking about memos are shareable via the PDF. So I would encourage you to share these with friends and colleagues who you think benefit. And ROI is one of those great ideas that's oftentimes poorly executed and poorly executed plans can lead to suboptimal outcomes and it can really muck up the decision-making process. And so we outlined several key ways that we think the ROI can be improved. The conversations around ROI can be improved. I want to kick this off by just mentioning that oftentimes we're presented, either we're on the sales side and we bring an ROI to a customer, or we're a customer and receive some sort of marketing or sales information about the ROI. And oftentimes that's sort of a, a check the box or it's sort of a bow on top. It's sort of a finale. And oftentimes we should have the conversation around an ROI as sort of a beginning or a starting point. How can we use the ROI in the process of calculating an ROI? How can that be helpful for our decision-making process? In other words, don't skip to the end and try to use that number as a decision-making process, but start at the beginning and let the process inform your decision-making process. So I want to point out just a couple things. ROI, one, we got to know the purpose of the ROI, the ROI we're calculating. It oftentimes allows us to compare things that aren't apples to apples or oranges to oranges. So if you're thinking about, should I buy a farm? Should I invest in irrigation? Should I invest in tillage? Should I buy some cattle? Those things have very different investment life cycles. And so the ROI allows us sort of back into a common number that says, oh, this could be a priority or this should be secondary. Another way the ROI is helpful is when you compare sort of one management practice with another. There's also a couple of ways that an ROI can be a mirage or an illusion, and there are outcomes that are bimodal or asymmetric. What that means is sometimes we don't actually know with confidence what the outcome is going to be. So we got to take an average. Maybe it's an average over several years, or maybe it's an average across multiple observation points. There are two ways that this can get mucky. One of them is bimodal. So bimodal means it's kind of like flipping a coin. It's either heads or tails. On average, it's 50-50, but we never actually have an average outcome. And I think this is a classic fungicide problem. Decades, especially you know, 10, 15 years ago, fungicides had really big ROIs in some years and really small or negative ROIs for another set of years. So if the hypothetical ROI was 14%, producers knew that they weren't ever going to get 14%. It was going to be like 30 or 40% for a few years and more like one or two, maybe even negative for a couple of years. And so don't let that average, you know, get in your way of making a good decision, you know, dig into that range of outcomes and understand what are the conditions in which this gives me a really high ROI. What are the conditions in which it gives me a really low ROI? The other piece here are asymmetric returns. What this means is there are some th conditions where the outcome is so favorable it outweighs what might be a lower or negative ROI. And the best example is this is home insurance. Nobody ever buys home insurance with the expectation of having a positive ROI, but we do it because we expect to have this really big payout in that adverse situation that our house is catching on fire. So if we all go through our lives with never collecting home insurance, that's 
probably going to make those premiums worth it. We're not going to really, you know, regret that decision all that much because it protected a really big asymmetric outcome, provided that risk management. Of course, another example of asymmetric returns is the lottery. You know, the ROI on that is pretty darn low and negative for a lot of us, but a few people really win big. And it's that big win that makes it's that big asymmetric win that really makes that appealing to everybody else. Again, I shared a lot of ideas here, but I want to count, you know, one last thing is we can't capture everything in a ROI. We can't capture things like this variety dries down a little faster. This fungicide helps with stock standability. And so we have to realize that even with the best ROI assumptions and the best estimates, it still isn't going to get us everywhere. It's kind of like the proverbial elephant in the dark room. We can feel around and we get a good shape for what this looks like, but the ROI isn't going to be able to give us a full picture of what's going on with that investment decision. It's going to provide a lot of insights, especially if we're making two comparisons, but it's not going to be able to get us all the way across the finish line. And so we don't always pick the highest ROI. There could be other things that influence our decision. We just don't ever get to that point. So of course, that brings us to sort of the wrap up. It's an important measure, but it's not all knowing. It's not this apex calculation that has clear insights. There are shortcomings, there are blind spots. And we should use, again, the process of generating a calculation to help us improve our thought process. Let's not just focus on the outcome. Let's think about the process. And the last point here is there's a former Purdue professor, Howard Doster, who used to have a mantra, test before you invest. And that's a really great mindset to use in your decision-making process. If you're thinking about two alternative investments, do a little test. You can do the research and your homework, but do a little test before you really ratchet up that investment. And that ROI framework can really help you. Again, there are going to be things that you can capture. There'll be things that you miss in your capturing. And there are things that are just impossible to capture. So think about the cost, the potential returns, the alternatives, and what isn't accounted for as you're starting to work your way down that ROI process. And with that, I want to wrap up this week's conversation. Again, thank you for joining us. Update your forecast around the yield contest. We are going to get our first winners for the first half of the contest here in August. We have a lot of great questions, again, around the macroeconomy, commodity prices. So lots of things for you to be updating and putting your expectations with plugging those in. Again, I'm David. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, stay curious. Mm -hmm.